It is indeed a pleasure to have this privilege to play here for you. And we, we intend to give you a very fine program, so just settle back, relax, and enjoy the moment. 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 Hey, what's going on, everyone? Welcome back to Miked Up. I'm your host, Mika Gadsden, and I'm here with a mm, somewhat of a holiday theme show. Uh, I wanted to take this time following Thanksgiving, or as I call it, things taken, to center uh, the history, the heritage, and um, just the culture of indigenous folks, specifically indigenous folks who inhabited the state of South Carolina. So I, I want to take time to do that. Uh, so what I did was I spent about uh, a few times this week going to the library, visiting um, the South Carolina room in my main branch located in Charleston. And I also picked up a few books and and went back to some articles that I had re- that I had I read over the years um, that talked about the Native American experience here in the South. Um, it's it's a history that we're not taught in classrooms, unfortunately, and that's universal, I believe. I, I don't think that that's specific to the South. Uh, we're not taught enough about what Native American lives look like, what that culture looked like. Um, and we also sometimes we forget that they're still here and thriving. Um, they're still here. They're still federally recognized uh, communities and tribes here, specifically the Catawba. Um, and, and there's a lot of history there. Now, me, I identify as African-American and I've never I've never done any um any research into you know my family tree, um, but I believe that like with many folks who um, are descendants of the enslaved, we might find that a branch or two of our family tree might coincide or um, might coincide or might contain some pre-American or Native American lineage. So um, I, I don't attempt to do that on this episode, but what I am going to do is. I dug up a few stories that I heard over the years and some that I just found this week that talk about the Native American experience here and also uh, something and another um, topic that I've been really anxious to really dig into again because I want to trace my own family tree but that's the topic of black Indians and so um, originally I I didn't anticipate including this but I was just um, taken aback by a bevy of information that came about I, I would say around the like the late 90s and and maybe even more so around 2010 2011 2012 we started to see more or I started to see more um, uh, presentations uh, led by scholars who um, who traced or rather who researched african-american uh, culture as it intersected with native american or indigenous cultures and community and what i found was amazing like one thing that i started to to post about on social media um is that you know some native american tribes own slaves here in the south and also throughout other indian ter- territories across the country but not just that I also found that there were so many tribes that took us in that took and I say us because I am a descendant of the enslaved but took in uh, enslaved um, runaways and and lived with them in peace and harmony and created communities and we see that a lot in like states like Oklahoma 
even way before Oklahoma became a state. Uh, black and, and indigenous communities lived together um, in, in, in harmony. And so I just found all these, these amazing stories where both cultures intersected and I wanted to center them. Again, you know, Thanksgiving is a, is a holiday that I struggle with in terms of what its original importance is supposed to be. But I thought it was a great time to center, again, the culture, the history, the heritage of indigenous lives, and also bring into the fold how those lives intersect with the history that I have. So um, what you're hearing in this episode will be uh, a series of clips, and I'll try my best to make sure I include links to the original um, the original posts. They're going to be a couple of links from NPR from a show I don't believe the show is on anymore called Tell Me More, hosted by Michelle Martin. Um, and then also I inc- I'm going to start off with a clip from a local news affiliate well not local to Charleston but local to South Carolina and it's just going to go over it's going to give you like a brief introduction uh, into the history of of indigenous folks in South Carolina and then I'll hop back in with with I guess a little bit more context and then play some you know some additional clips as well so um, hopefully you'll enjoy this episode hopefully you'll find this to be very timely given this time of the year Um, and yeah it's also November it's the end of November but it's November and this is a month where we do like to observe um, Native American history so um, yeah just listen in and I'll see you on the other side 6,000 years before settlers came to our country, this land was occupied by Native Americans. There were 29 tribes right here in South Carolina, and one of them, the Congaree. The Congaree living uh, down in the vicinity or just downriver from Columbia. The Congaree lived along the river in what we now know as Richland and Lexington counties. In the 1600s, there was almost a thousand Congaree. After they fought colonists in the Yemassee War of 1715, their numbers dwindled and that contact with Europeans also brought diseases like smallpox, which diminished the tribe even more. It was then that the Congaree joined the Catawba, living just to the north. And that was common practice in Indian country, period. If you were a small tribe and you feared your neighbor and your numbers got to the point where you didn't feel comfortable, then you went to a a larger tribe and asked to, to become part of them. Plus, the Catawba had a functioning, civilized society. And that was one of the things I think that people don't understand. They think that there was uncivilized people living here, but you had communities, you had governments that that were operating, that were functioning. So that's pretty complex when you stop and think about it. Catawba community consisted of multiple towns, and each of these towns um, was arranged roughly in houses in a circular fashion, and we believe surrounded by a palisade or defensive enclosure. A typical village probably held 150 to 200 people. Chief Harris describes what life was like. For the men, um, it was a hard existence, if you wish to look at it that way. It was, you were a hunter, hunter-gatherer society. They made their own implements, so they were also making axes, knives, um, bows, arrows. And women had plenty to do as well. Their day would be mo- mostly uh, working the fields somewhat. Um, they also were, were responsible for raising the children. They were also responsible for tanning the hides and also uh, preparing for the, for the food that was going to be stored through the winter. And they started their families at an early age. History has shown 
that you married at a very early age, which means you're probably marrying at 14, 15. The Catawba were a Siouan-speaking nation, and like the Sioux, they were known for their strength when in battle. They also believed that if a member of their tribe was killed, in order for them to rest in peace, they had to avenge the death and would often bring back a scalp as evidence of their success. When you talk about fierceness, um, at one time, the, the, the Catawbas were considered the fiercest warriors on the, on the East Coast. But they were also very spiritual with a deep faith and they had many rituals and prayers. You'd start your prayer with, you know, for, for you who never dies, we ask these things of you. It's no different than saying, you know, I ask this in the name of God. Although there are less than 3,000 remaining tribe members, they still carry on an important tradition of their ancestors. There's never been a time where we stopped doing pottery. So for 6,000 years, it's been documented yet that we continuously have done pottery. And they had a style all their own. They use a unique process called coiling. They gather clay, mix it with water, and roll it into long strips. And then they layer or coil the strips into the desired shape for a bowl or water vessel. Now once that dries, they take some river stones and rub the surface until it's nice and smooth. After that, they heat the piece over an oven to set the clay and also to bring out some beautiful colors. This art form continues to this day. And this right here is a cubic jug. It was a water vessel. Would, we'd put water in it and hang it up in a tree, and you could drink from one side and pour from the other. It has two distinguished spouts. So bring your family to the USC Native American Study Center or the Catawba Reservation to learn more about the original inhabitants of this land. You can see traditional dancing, meet storytellers, and get authentic handmade crafts like jewelry, beaded barrettes, peace pipes, or woven baskets, and of course, one-of-a-kind, genuine Catawba pottery. We, we welcome people on, on our reservation. So come learn about us. We have, a, we have a rich history, and education is the key to many doors. For Watch Fox News, I'm Alexis King. I hope that clip from the Columbia Fox affiliate, Watch Fox, I hope that clip gave you more context as to, you know, what tribes existed here in South Carolina. And you heard some voices of some who belong to certain tribes and some historians in that clip. Again, I'll try my best to include uh, clips in the show notes um, of this show. If you're listening on iTunes or SoundCloud, you'll find those notes there. Um, this next clip is from the Post and Courier's coverage of a tribe that I had no, I just had no awareness of. I'm going to read the little caption beneath the video that I found that accompanied, accompanied some written coverage that was, um, again, reported back in um, late January of this year. And it reads, um, in Charleston's backyard, about 400 Native Americans are scattered along the Edisto River. And so uh, this tribe, I believe, is the Edisto Natchez Cuso of South Carolina. So you'll hear just a clip that I found. It's just a couple of minutes long. Um, yeah, just listen in and I'll come right back. I wish I could talk to them, but then, and, and it may sound weird to a lot of people, 
but somewhere inside i don't it's a a warmth it's a pride it's because i know they were here and we're still here it's a sense of pride that runs that you feel when you stand at this river it, re it really is and just to know that even I mean, a lot of people look at it negatively about Thanksgiving and things like that. But the one thing about our tribe, I don't think that we never did because we adapted to them. And just think if we would have never did, where would y'all be? We were just doing what you do. We were helping our brothers. You know, they didn't look like us. We tried to help them, you know. So that runs deep in, deep in the core of a person is to just know, even, even though regardless of what happened through history, we tried. To, we were trying to do the right thing for any Native American. I think is that runs. They're prideful. They they're gracefully prideful. And we've survived through all the things that has tried to take us out: diseases, people, discrimination, education. There's still a few of us here. <laughs> it really is. There's still just a few of us. And we don't mind sharing all. Okay, before I play the next clip, um, which is actually a clip from NPR, um, it's going to feature the voice of famed historian William Loren Katz. Uh, he actually is the author of a book that I'm holding in my hands right now. That book is titled Black Indians, A Hidden Heritage. Uh, this book just really jumped out to me, of course, um, because of the, you know, me wanting to center the experience of indigenous Americans or pre-Americans, um, but also because like with many African-Americans in this country, um, a lot of us who are the descendants of the enslaved, um, we, we always heard stories about having um, Native American ancestry in our family trees. Some of us were more fortunate to be able to maintain their connection to that heritage and history and are able to trace it back directly. And then there are others like me who just hear rumors or or stories from our great grandparents or our great aunts and uncles um, that speak to maybe our, um, uh, you know, our connection to Cherokee tribes or Seminole tribes. Um, so this book is actually going to start uh, a journey for me, hopefully, where I can start tracing back my genealogy and figuring out, you know, what what's all there. But back to the book the book um black indians just really um and there have been other uh, updates to his book since it was first published but this book just really um it, it shows you a part of of american history that is seldom taught in fact the back of the book uh says that and i'm going to read that blurb uh though they seldom appear in textbooks hollywood movies or tv shows of the old west black indians were there as sure as sitting bull Davy Crockett and Geronimo, but in the chronicles of the American, of the Americans, their long arduous quest for freedom is still a neglected chapter. So, um, yeah, that's just a quick blur from the back. It's it's just like yeah, this is like an erased history. And what I was able to find in the library, and also like going through like the Library of Congress and other like. Um, other academic institutions I found like these just archives and bevies of, of images of these really dark complected 
um, uh, indigenous folk, or they, they took on many different physical appearances. Of course, blackness is not just your skin color, um, and Native American heritage is not, it has nothing to do with your appearance as well. Um, but just, it was just amazing to see these black faces with these other, like, what are classically seen as Native American features, like long straight hair or, or long braids and, um, a lot of, a lot of regalia, just seeing these, these broad noses and, and this dark, beautiful skin. Um, it just really, it jolts, it jolts you, um, to a reality that, Hey, there's a lot of our American history that we just, we're just not aware um, of and so um, I'm going to play the interview and not ramble too much and let you hear more from historians about the history of black Indians in our country. Today, this final day in November, we decided to take a look at one group's shared heritage with Native Americans and efforts to have that heritage more broadly recognized. I'm talking about so-called black Indians, people who are considered black or African-American, but who also claim American Indian heritage. For decades, that shared history has sometimes been celebrated, but sometimes the opposite is true. Joining us to talk about that, William Lauren Katz. He's the author of the book Black Indians, A Hidden Heritage, and he's with us from our bureau in New York. Also with us is Shonda Buchanan. She's a descendant of North Carolina and Mississippi Choctaw Indians, and she's a professor of English at Hampton University in Virginia, and she's with us from the studios on campus. Thank you both so much for speaking with us. Thank you. Thank you. So, Mr. Katz, will you start with us and just tell us how the relationship between African-Americans and Native Americans began? Well, it began with the earliest colonial period. Soon after Columbus arrived, Africans were brought in. And so you have a pattern of Native Americans taking in African-Americans and the two people mixing and forming a kind of united front against the forces that were bringing slavery and colonialism to the Americas. So this has a long, long history. Is this a history that is generally acknowledged by the tribes? Well, I think some of them do, certainly along the East Coast where the African-American members are prominent. And uh, they played a a very central role among the Seminole Nation. The Africans were among the leaders of it and uh, took part in the 42-year war the Seminoles waged against the United States government and the slave catchers. And forgive me, Mr. Katz, is it also true, though, that there were tribes who owned slaves? Absolutely true, including the five so-called civilized nations. But I have to explain, it wasn't the kind of slavery that we associate with the plantations of the South. And people could get married, they could eat at the same table, people could get free, and they were treated nicely. And we know this from the testimony. They would much rather have had Native Americans to be their masters than the white slave owners of the South. Well, that's a tough call, isn't it, who you'd want to own you? But be that as it may, Shonda, you wrote a piece for Indian country today about your experience of being a black Indian at a Chickahominy powwow. Tell us a little bit about it. It was not a good experience. Well, what happened to me was I was basically dressed in my buckskin and regalia, and I danced uh, in the circle the first time, and one of the Chickahominy council members came to me, and he said, do you have your tribal enrollment card? And I said, no, do you card here? And I actually had heard that the Chickahominy did card. So I said, okay, I won't dance. And I asked my husband, do you want to leave? He said, no. When I heard the announcer call for intertribals, generally at all the powwows, intertribals, anyone who is dressed in regalia can go ahead and go dance in the circle. And so I said, all right, well, it's intertribals. I'll go ahead and dance. I'm not disrespecting the tribe by dancing intertribals since I share this history. 
And when I came out of the circle after dancing in her tribals, I was accosted by three of the council members who said to me, didn't you hear what we said the first time? But you didn't notice them asking anybody else for a tribal card. No, they did not ask. And, and so what do you them. think that meant? What, what, is that, what did that <laughs> mean? I, the, I, I assume honest, that you were the only right. person who was visibly black. Let's put I it was that way. the only one who was visibly black in that circle. And even though this is one of their rules, they cannot negate my heritage and my history, my oral tradition. Well, was this an isolated incident or is this something that happens to you or to others who are visibly black with some frequency? It does happen with frequency. Last year, we also went to the Chickahominy powwow, and actually one of the council members asked another one of our friends who, you know, we call ourselves Red Blacks, another Red Black, if he had his card and if my husband had his card. And my <laughs> husband was so upset, he said, I'll never dance at that powwow again. So yes, it does happen with a frequency, and it seems that darker-skinned people get carded, whereas the lighter-skinned or visibly Indian folks do not. But Shauna, you know, I think some people want to ask, why do you keep at it if people keep dissing you? <laughs> um, it's who I am. I don't know. Sometimes I feel like, you know, I'm going to sit at that counter. I'm going to drink out of that water fountain. You know, this is a heritage that my people have. And I wasn't raised on a reservation, but I was raised knowing I was black and Indian. Mr. Katz, what about you? Do you, do you what, what do you make of this? Well, let me come at it from another way. A, a very sad thing has happened. This has nothing to do with dancing. This is worse. But the Seminole Nation has tried to remove members mm-hmm. who are of mixed uh, African and Native American descent. And this has happened with the Cherokees also. There's been a kind of rift. So what it seems that the initial lack of racism that led to this amalgamation has now gradually morphed Uh, into the acceptance of the kind of racism that was so prevalent in the white societies that nurtured it with slavery. If you're just joining us, this is Tell Me More from NPR News. We're speaking with historian and author William Lauren Katz, as well as Shonda Buchanan, an English professor at Hampton University, who's also of North Carolina and Mississippi Choctaw descent. And we're talking about the shared heritage, sometimes disputed, between people of African descent who are also claim Indian heritage. So, so Mr. Katz, what is that about? I mean, there are those who would say really what this is about is these tribes trying to narrow the pool of people who are eligible for tribal benefits. Do you think it's that or do you think it's something else? Well, I think it can be that. And also, remember, the U.S. government has always set the rules, which is kind of odd because it was the first, you know, oppressor in the United States of both peoples. And the people suffering under it have a right to declare who they are and what they are, and they know their history. And Mr. Katz, is there a similar effort to disenroll Indians who are white-looking? No. No. (laughs) Absolutely not. I think that's the proof of the pudding. Where does this conversation go from here? I I do want to note that last year, the National Museum of the American Indian had an exhibition Mm -hmm. about the relationship between African Americans and Native Americans. It was called Indivisible. And as I understand it, it was quite well received. Uh, That's one data point. And then the other data points are the experiences that you are having. (laughs) Ms. Buchanan, where do you think, and I'll ask each of you to answer this as your final question, where do you think this conversation goes from here? I think that that exhibit at the um, Smithsonian was one beautiful small step towards recognizing uh, the shared heritage of African and Native Americans. 
And the next step would be for tribal councils to actually have these kinds of conversations and to say, you know, are we denying our brothers and sisters and cousins the journey that they took with us on that great walk? You know, when the Cherokee were removed from the North Carolina, Georgia, Alabama area, their slaves were on the great walk or the Trail of Tears with them. And Mr. Katz, what do you think? Final thought from you. Where where do you think this conversation goes from here? Well, I think uh, that's a very good idea that there should be a conversation because this is a wonderful heritage. This is something to be proud of, not to turn on in this post-civil rights era and raise issues that are really from the civil rights era. William Lauren Katz is the author of Black Indians, A Hidden Heritage. Shonda Buchanan, who has North Carolina and Mississippi Choctaw ancestry, is a professor of English at Hampton University in Virginia. Thank you both so much for speaking with us. Thank you very much. Thank you. Ooh, that was a lot. So what I'm going to do now is just take a quick um, music break. Yeah, and we'll come back with more history, um, more uh, information that I I uncovered. We're going to lean more into the Black Indian or um, the Indigenous and African um, that overlapping history between the two communities of the two people. So we're going to just take a music break and we'll be back. into my palms, feel my calm soul scent, kisses lifting your arms, planting songs in your fertile farms, earth, we deep in the root, we're reaping the fruitful colors of Farnsworth, I, time traveled to love you back when, back before internets, our intimacy was fact then, back before captives cornered us, caught us all and cashed in, back when we studied stars, you and your alabaster jaws, girl, you jaw me with that jogging of your black skin. Aunties, mothers, babies, lovers, cousins, your black friends. Every hue, far in between few. Seated on your pew, you peruse possibilities. Conjuring forces, forcing away hostilities. If love is sound, I love you like ocean waters that drown. Love is motion, I love you upward, downward, around. And if love is life, these letters, they'll mimic our babies cry. And if love is there after I love in chapters, after I die, you my forever love. The woman, I do whatever for. Heaven knows I'm hella sure. Baby, I'm gonna love you forever more. You know why? I said it, you my forever love. The one I would do whatever for. Heaven knows I'm hella sure. I'ma love you forever more. Then I embrace you with a spirit bond. My brother don't mean no harm. See that apathy of emotion, you to be strong. See that atrophy of emotion. You banging, you hustle. Got you toting around the way to this world that don't love you. They put a thousand blacks in atrocious environments. Social sciences study the grief assigned to police. Confining it. Just a position. One of the lucky brothers surviving it is excellent. Just a position it with us dying. I see the trauma. You mad for me? I'm mad for you. Time that we get radical. Heal our own with gratitude. Boy, I could call you king. 
but I call you tribe. That obsession with royalty is how our people die. Boy, stay alive if love is sound. I love you like ocean waters that drown. If love is motion, I love you up or down, what around. And if love is life, these letters, they'll mimic our babies cry. If love is the after, I'll love in chapters after I die. You my forever love. A brother I do whatever for. Heaven knows I'm hella sure. Brother, I'm gonna love you forevermore. You know why? I'm saying you my forever love. Black brother, I do whatever for. Heaven knows I'm hella sure. Brother, I'm gonna love you forevermore. I'm saying that's why you my forever love. on drums right now. Give it up for Shaniqua McCann's. Give it up for 420s. They're crushing it right now. Y'all feel good? It's a vibe. This is a vibe. Roderick, man, I think we need to take it to. I feel like things keep rising, man. You feel like that? I feel like the things keep rising. And people are not paying attention. You better pay attention. Can, we, can, I get, can I get some keys? All right, let's see. Gave a $20 bill to a woman on the street for a fresh meal in front of a hotel that clipped the ribbon where the black folk used to be now, hipsters living. Poor folks under the bridge, yeah, that's the black zone. Black folks still get forced out of their black homes. So whenever I approach the topic or broach the logic, 
You better believe I'll be talking in a black tone. I'm witness to a city that turned God into capital. Bread and wine ain't really divine in this town. God bless the children who living through all that. So maligned, yet aligned with this sound. See, I'm not a rich white girl in white pearls riding through the hood just to make it to the brewery. This ain't nothing new to me. It's another thing. When your life raft is in the path of a hurricane, what you gonna do when the water keeps rising? Tell me what you gonna do when the water keeps rising. Tell me what you gonna do. Yeah, tell me what you gonna do. Yeah, tell me what you gonna do. Black man on the boat, black woman on the boat too. Spilling blood in the field is real, so everything a nigga sing feels spiritual. Came here in the Lord's name, white man brought the world war. We got a boat full of rebels and we pulling up. Revolution on the shore, tell me what you gonna do when the water starts rising. Yeah, tell me how you gonna survive it. What you gonna do when the water starts rising. Yeah, how you gonna colonize it? What you gonna do when the rain brings heaven down to the hell that you raised up all around us? What you gonna do when the water keep rising? You realizing that the water don't drown us? What you gonna do? Gave a $20 bill to a woman on the street for a fresh meal In front of the hotel that clipped the ribbon where the black folk used to be Now hipsters living poor folk under the bridge That's a black zone Black folk get forced out of the black home Whenever I approach the topic or approach the logic You better nigga be talking in a black tone I'm a witness to a city that turned God to capital Bread and wine ain't really divine in this town God bless the kids who living through all that Maligned and aligned with this sound I'm not a rich white girl in white pearls Who riding through the hood just to make it to the brewery This ain't nothing new to me This is another thing When your life raft is in the past of a hurricane, what you gonna do when the water keep rising? Yeah, tell me how you gonna survive it. What you gonna do when the water keep rising? Yeah, how you gonna colonize it? What you gonna do when the rain rains heaven down to the hell that you raised up all around us? What you gonna do when the water keeps rising? You realizing that the water don't drown us. What you gonna do? White Charleston, tell me what you gonna do. Rich Charleston, tell me what you finna do. I can't hear y'all. Tell me what you gonna do. I got a message for you. Tell me what you gonna do when the water keeps rising. Yeah, tell me how you gonna survive it. What you gonna do when the water keeps rising? Yeah, how you finna colonize it? What you gonna do when the rain brings heaven down to the hell that you raised up all around us? What you finna do when the water keeps rising? You realizing that the water won't drown us. What they finna do? Yeah, I wonder to myself, tell me what they finna do? Yeah, yeah, I wanna know right now. Tell me what you finna do? Yeah, yeah. I don't know about you, tell me what you finna do, yeah, tell me right now what you finna do when the water keep rising, tell me what you finna do when the water keep rising, yeah, tell me what you gonna do when the water keeps rising, tell me what you finna do when the water keeps rising, how you gonna survive it, tell me how you gonna colonize it, tell me what you gonna do when the water keeps rising, tell me what you gonna do. Tell me what you gonna do when the water keeps rising. What you gonna do? One question for you. I don't know about you. Tell me what you gonna.
Tell me what you're going to do. I don't know. Y'all in trouble. Y'all about to be in trouble. 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 Okay. Okay, we're back. Hopefully you enjoyed those two songs. If you're playing Mic'd Up Bingo, that was another square. It was a Benny Star mention or Benny Star song. Yup. <laughs> hey, when y'all get your own podcast and radio shows, you can play all your friends' music. <laughs> I, I'm going to be self-indulgent in that. So anyway, all right. So back to today's show, which is about the indigenous experience, the indigenous uh, history and heritage that exists here, specifically in South Carolina. Uh, we talked, uh, we just wrapped up before the music break we wrapped up some um, information and interview that debuted on NPR regarding uh, black Indians and um, I kind of wanted to uh, and, and continue that conversation about the overlap um, that existed between not even the enslaved but because before hmm, it's really complicated because uh, I know we just celebrated the 1619 project but we do know um, we can verify this through historical research that um, folks from the African continent were brought here before 1619. And yeah, so there's a huge overlap. And I opened up Katz's book uh, and to, I jumped to the um, the index to find out more about how black and uh, indigenous lives coexisted and this was very this was illuminating I'm going to read this one paragraph it reads in distant South Carolina forests two and a half centuries before the declaration of independence two dark peoples first lit the fires of freedom and exalted its principles though neither white Christian nor European they became the first settlement of any permanence on these shores to include people from overseas as such they qualify as our earliest inheritance okay so what that basically he's outlining is that black and indigenous folks um they were here two and a half centuries before the declaration of independence um and this specific part goes on to talk about the black indians of the pd river region um, and just throughout South Carolina, it was just amazing to see how far back that history went. Um, I'm going to play another clip about an unfortunate aspect of this cohabitation. Um, we also know that, um, I guess they call it the five civilized tribes. Uh, they actually own black slaves. Now, the institution of slavery on Indian territories um, or within, um, you know, tribal communities um, did not resemble uh, the same as like maybe on the plantation however it's still human bondage it's still a thing it's still unsightly it's still a, a really sore subject but I thought that um, if we were going to talk about this history we need to be open and honest about it there is one tribe there's there are a lot of tribes right that, uh, that existed that lived in South Carolina but there's one specific tribe that gets a lot of uh, recognition um, and rightfully so. They are currently the only federally recognized tribe of South Carolina, and that's the Catawba tribe. Um, I'm not going to include a clip that I found. I think I, I'll include the link to it at least. Um, I'm not quite sure if I'm going to be able to fit in their clip, but um, I'm going to read 
um, to you an excerpt I found from when you go to like a reference section. You can find this online too. You can pay for it. Um, but the South Carolina Historical Magazine, I, I found an edition of that online that included an excerpt. Um, actually, it was a longer piece authored by Martha M. Bentley, and it's entitled "Slave Open." Excuse me, slaveholding Catawbas. I'm going to read what she wrote. This is just like the first, uh, let's say, paragraph or so. It says, "The story of the Catawba Indians of what is now York County, South Carolina, is a tragic tale of a once powerful and proud people practically destroyed through contact with white settlers." Though always friendly to English settlers in the Carolina colony, the Catawba population was dramatically decreased through the exposure to European diseases, chiefly smallpox, and the introduction of alcohol to the tribe. Later, the gradual encroachment of white settlers on Catawba land slowly displaced and decimated the tribe and left for it only a small amount of its formerly plentiful holdings. Given this history, it may be surprising that the Catawba in the late years of the antebellum period adopted the white practice of owning black slaves. Although this practice was not widespread, the percentage of slave-owning Catawba was roughly com comparable to that of the percentage, excuse me, to that of southern whites. John Hope Franklin, a scholar of black history, says that in 1860, only 25% of Southern whites owned slaves. And of this percentage, only 12% were large-scale owners. Though the Catawba population was thought to be uh, 1,470, excuse me, be 1,470 in 1715 with 400 warriors in 1743, Robert Mills claimed in 1826 the Catawba did not number more than 110 people of every age. By 1841, only 81 Catawba were said to still exist anywhere. Stephen Baker, in an, oh my goodness, ethno-historical study of the Catawba supports these statistics. If these numbers are correct, then if, if they're only, only, excuse me, then if a very few Catawba owned black slaves, the percentage would have been similar to that of Southern whites who lived around them. Sorry for fumbling that last part. I'm getting older and need real, real, real glasses. Um, and I'm reading from my my cell phone. Um, but yeah, I, I wanted to stop it right there because it, it gave you, I guess what they were attempting to do, doing that last like third was uh, show you the numbers and how it compared to the population of whites compared to the smaller numbers of Catawba. But the point is that the Catawba did own black slaves. And this was not a practice unique to the South. We know that other uh, tribes, the Cherokee, um, and I believe the Comanche own black slaves. So instead of me uh, kind of rambling more on about that part, I'm going to play another clip that talks more pointedly about the practice of black slave ownership. And again, in the show notes, I will try to include, um, there was a great presentation by black um, Indians or black native folk out in Oklahoma who maintained their heritage over centuries. Um, there are some 
other amazing clips as well. Um, if you're watching the HBO series um, Watchmen, they they talk so vividly. They talk so well, excuse me, so well about the Tulsa bombings that took place in these black communities that thrived, and what that what that show also does is show you how black Western life look like what it was and it's just so funny that this show's research took me back to Oklahoma and showed me another aspect of black western life um on Indian territories that that um and that still thrives to this day so um let me just play the clip about black uh slave excuse me about slave holding uh Native Americans and then we'll jump into some more information it might surprise you to know that long ago in the late 18th and early 19th century, when it served as the capital of the Michigan Territory, slavery of both African-American and Native American people was a part of Detroit's past. Very little research has been done on this, but our next guest is hoping to change that. Taya Miles is the chair of the Afro-American and African Studies Department at the University of Michigan. We met with her before when she won a 2011 MacArthur Fellowship, widely known as a Genius Grant, and she joins us from member station WUOM in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Professor Miles, welcome back to the program. Thanks so much for joining us, and of course, congratulations again on the MacArthur. And I'd like to ask you, when you first encountered stories of African-Americans and Native American slaves in Michigan, in the Michigan Territory. I think it's a surprise to many people to know or to to even think about the fact that slavery existed that far north. Well, I first encountered this when I took a class to the Ypsilanti Historical Museum, and we also took a local Underground Railroad tour, and we learned about an abolitionist here in southeast Michigan named Laura Haviland, who did work in Detroit and also in Ontario. And she taught a school for escaped slaves in Canada and there were blacks as well as Native people at that school. So that, for me, was the first clue that there was something between black people and Native people in Detroit history regarding slavery as well as in the Southeast. Well, what have you been able to piece together about the slave experience in Michigan for both African Americans and Native Americans? And I realize that the research is in its early stages. I know we want to stress that. But what have you been Mm -hmm. able to piece together? Well, the first thing that strikes me about this research is that Detroit is a very unusual place. It was a major settlement for Native Americans, for French settlers, for British settlers, and then later for the Americans. So that meant that it was uh, an area where lots of people were moving through and passing through. There was a good deal of contestation over who would get to control Detroit. Would it be the French? Would it be the British? And would it be the Americans? And this meant that slavery also had a multi-layered aspect in Detroit. Well, first of all, how did Native Americans come to be enslaved, and what Mm -hmm. kinds of things did they do? Native American people in the Great Lakes were engaged in conflict, warfare with other groups of Native people. And in these conflicts, Great Lakes Indians would take captives of war. Those captives of war were, for the most part, treated as slaves of a certain kind. And Native people who captured these slaves brought them back to the Great Lakes and then would trade them to French settlers and to British settlers. So this is the way that Native Americans from the West, from uh, the, the Pawnee Nation, for example, ended up being in the Great Lakes and ended up serving as slaves in Native communities in the Great Lakes and also in French households and in British households. Did slavery work the way we have come to understand it in the United States, that this was lifetime servitude, that your children 
would also be enslaved, that this was an institution in perpetuity? Well, slavery in the Native American context was not exactly like what we're used to in the United States because in Native American context, captives could be treated in any number of ways. They could be treated as second-class citizens and they could be compelled to perform labor. But captives in Native American context could also become family members. They could be adopted to replace people in the tribe who were lost through disease or through warfare. But I have to say here, Michelle, that there was a difference between French and British slaveholders, in fact. So um, we can almost imagine a transition regarding slavery in the Great Lakes that went from a more flexible system when Native people were the captors to um, a little more rigidity when French people were the captors to a greater rigidity when the British were the captors, and uh, that rigidity only increased when Americans were the slaveholders. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with MacArthur fellow Taya Miles of the University of Michigan. She's telling us about some new research in its very early stages about the history of slavery in the Michigan territories. And we're talking about the fact that both Native Americans and African Americans were enslaved under the system, but that this took very different forms. Talk about the African American experience, if you would. How did that Mm -hmm. happen? How did enslaved Africans come to be in this area? And what was their experience? African Americans who were enslaved in Detroit in the Great Lakes area were people who were sometimes themselves captives of Native Americans. So Native people were moving you know, all around, um, north and south, east and west, interacting with other nations of Native people, and were sometimes capturing black slaves from the south. And then black slaves who were captured by Indians would perhaps be passed along just like the Native slaves that I just described. Another way that black people came to be enslaved in Detroit is that Detroit merchants actually sought them. So Detroit really made its mark in the Northwest Territory by being a mercantile site. It was an incredible location for the fur trade, and it was a place where a number of merchants uh, decided to set up their businesses and to make their livelihoods. Many of them became wealthy, and they wanted to have black slaves. So they would actually send orders to New York for black slaves. You can see these orders dating back at least to the 1760s with Detroit merchants, whether they be French or British, trying to order in black slaves of certain specifications. So they might ask for a young man who can, um, who is strong and can lift things. They might ask for uh, a black woman who is a very good cook. And these black slaves are coming to Michigan in that way. Can you share a story that you find particularly fascinating about the experience of enslaved people in Michigan at this time, just to give us a taste of Mm -hmm. what you're discovering? There is a family known as the Denisons that was first owned by two brothers named the McCombs who were very wealthy. Uh, They actually at one time owned Gross Isle and Belle Isle, the, the Detroit City Park. This family once owned it. The Denisons were a black family who had been owned by the McCombs. They were then sold to a white family named the Tuckers. And the Tuckers said they were going to free the father and mother, Peter and Hannah Dennison, upon the death of the father in the Tucker family. But they did not keep their word. And Peter and Hannah were then transferred, sort of lent out, to the new mayor of Detroit. So Detroit only became a town officially in 1802. And in 1805, Peter and Hannah found themselves the rented slaves of the mayor of the city, um, who was Elijah Brush. That is interesting. It is. And for some reason, the governor of the territory noticed Peter and put him at the head of a black militia 
which was charged with fighting Indians to protect Detroit, an Indian threat that was perceived. That is interesting and complicated. Well, we certainly mm-hmm. look forward to more. Taya Miles is the chair of the Afro-American and African Studies Department at the University of Michigan. And as we mentioned, she was a 2011 recipient of a MacArthur Fellowship, often called a Genius Grant. And she was with us from member station WUOM in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Professor Miles, thank you so much. Thanks, Michelle. Hopefully uh, this episode of Mic'd Up really um, taught you something that you didn't know or introduced you to some additional facts about indigenous uh, life here in South Carolina. I know this previous clip went to um, Michigan and and the other clips as well weren't specifically um, uh, about South Carolina, but I did include some information about this state. Um, And in the show notes, I'll again include some some information um, that you probably will find helpful. And um, for those who observe Thanksgiving, um, I know a lot of you really just make it a day of community, whether you get together with your blood relatives or your chosen family. For a lot of us, Thanksgiving is a day of family, family and and, um, and getting together and, and sharing space with community. Um, but I hope that you did take a moment to recognize or honor or give thanks to our indigenous brothers, sisters, and other folks in that community who sacrificed so much, um, who lost so much um, due to the genocide that, that, um, that we call, I guess, colonization. Um, yeah, and I think that's what I wanted to do with this episode was highlight this history. Um, the The part about slave owning Indians was not to denigrate anyone. It was just to show you the complicated history that we all have here and that's always kind of hidden from us. Um, seldom are we um, told the a full truth about this country and and its origins and so I just wanted to just approach this topic and to introduce to some and maybe just continue the discussion for others about what life uh, has been like in this state and throughout the country um, for indigenous folk and for black folk whose lives intersected with uh, native folks so um, hopefully you found some things enlightening I know I did with the research um yeah, so uh, thank you for listening. This was a very special episode to me. Um, I took my time with this, and um, I hope you got something from it. And again, for those uh, re- listening to this rebroadcast via podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud, please um, continue to support the show. I've been getting so much amazing critical feedback. I love tough feedback as well. Um um, but just continue to, to listen to the show when it airs live on Fridays at 4 o'clock p.m. on OM Radio 96.3 FM in Charleston. Um, you can also head to the website to find out how you can stream the show and other shows. But um, continue to please just like, share, and subscribe. Um, uh, Mike Dub, if you can, please. It, it means a lot to me. Um, but until next time, y'all. Stay whole, stay real to my Gullah Geechee descendants out there. Stay black. See you next episode.